Liz? Yes. Oh, yes. Your image is frozen, just so oh, you know, really? so that's why I'm just checking in. You don't, you, you don't have a particularly stupid expression on your face, so it's fine. God, no! I don't want to be stupid. <laughs> no, it, it's not stupid. I tried so hard. Like, She's got so many screenshots. But we're not frozen? So many screenshots. No. Yeah, so many screenshots. For black male purposes, just in case I need them. You know, you really shouldn't pause when you say black male. <laughs> for so Whatever. many blackmail purposes for so many black male Ew. purposes oh, this is, that is just weird Liz you're making it I weird know, that's, now why you're back. Pause. that's why you should not pause when you say blackmail lessons learned um, yeah. but, so one thing that's cool though is like romance studies just got um, I don't know if you heard but they, the new part of the humanities building is finally open I saw Oh, yeah, and picture. so her department is actually in the new part, yeah. which is pretty nice. That's pretty oh. nice. Yeah. I mean, our offices have, like, a window that looks out to a wall. But you have a window. <laughs> oh in English, gosh. we don't have windows, so... <laughs> hey, I worked in a basement for five years, so... Yeah, yeah it's kind of... It's like a quasi-basement situation. I was vitamin D deficient yeah. in Ithaca. <gasps> it was that bad. I know. Some people get that. It's real. That's, like, that's something that can happen. It's really so. bad. And then I thought I must have also been vitamin D deficient too because mm-hmm. so I work on Caribbean literature mm-hmm. and I went to Haiti over the break and I grew up in Louisiana so I'm not like <gasps> not used to the sun you know but I got like sun like rash or something from having too much sun I was wow. like oh that's like what happens to you in Ithaca you know so Liz is from Mississippi, from Mississippi which is why I think she gasped awesome. yeah and I actually little known fact I was actually born in, in Louisiana. I have a lot of family. Oh, where? So northern Louisiana, around Bastrop, Marion. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm from southern okay. Louisiana. The, the Cajun country, Cage. if you will. <laughs> yeah. But yes, I yeah. feel the, cool. the summer spirit. It's so nice. It's so weird because, yeah. you know, like in Ithaca, spring doesn't come until mm-hmm. maybe summer gets here, like until May. Yeah. And in the south, spring is here like now. You know, it just yeah, totally. It's just already green, and so now that I'm in North Carolina again, it's kind of hard to transition back to the idea mm. that spring is actually coming. Right. As it is yeah. actually here. I'm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really weird. I mean, this is the first winter having place I've ever lived. Mm. Oh, where were you before this? I lived so I I did two years of school in Louisiana. Um, and then, uh, then I moved to Oakland, California, and mm. I lived there for almost nine years, I think. Oh, okay. So, and I was, like, in and out of school, mm-hmm. um, what doing were you whatever. Doing in I ended up going back. I was, uh, I don't know, I wanted to get out of the mm-hmm. South, um, and I had a friend who was moving there and had some money to move there, uh, which helps a lot, <laughs> um, because the cost of living is, like, obviously, yeah. like, really different. Yeah, even 10 years ago, you know, um, but, uh, yeah, so I just moved there and kind of was trying to figure it out. I think I was, like, 20, 19 or 20, and, um, I played music, I wrote poetry, which is what I, you know, do now, um, kind of seriously. Oh, nice. Are you reading for the, the poetry night? For we did it last night. Oh, damn, well, okay, we're going to then. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I did, I read <laughs> some poems, I have a new manuscript. We need to introduce our... Our, our, our guest here. So welcome to PhD Viz. This is Liz. 
This is Zine, and today we have a guest on my side <laughs> of the of the divide from the humanities. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I am Jacqueline Frost. Uh, I'm a PhD student, second year in women's studies in the French section. Yeah. Yeah, and as you heard, she's from Louisiana, and then more recently from California. Um, and so we're going to be talking, um, of course, about Jack today, but also Jack is here with us as a representative of the union, the Graduate Student Union at Cornell, CGSU, Cornell Graduate Students United, um, which I think would be a topic of a lot of interest to our listeners, both at Cornell and at other, other universities for many different reasons. But let's start from maybe the very beginning. Um, well, maybe like I'll talk a little bit about your work and then we can segue into my like, union history. I, my um, academic work. Yeah, like I think it'd be interesting for people sure. to hear because you said you worked in Caribbean literature. Yeah, so I, um, so I, I work mostly on Caribbean poetry, uh, which the the you know the the example that most people know is Aimé Césaire, mm-hmm. who is someone I work on quite a lot. Uh, and interestingly, there's there's quite a lot of work to still be done within the kind of anglophone academic world on that stuff. There's not actually a lot of you would think if someone who is so famous. Would, there would be a lot of Anglophone scholarship, but it turns yeah. out there's really, there's not a lot. Um, so people say that there's essentially a kind of renaissance of, of his scholarship as well as some of the people in, in his milieu in the 40s and 50s. Um, and all of that stuff is really, really interesting. There was like a very, very bri- vibrant magazine culture, um, which, as most people know, is attached to anti-colonial politics of the time. And so mm-hmm. I'm really interested in that kind of intersection between people who are working creatively um, in the in kind of artistic disciplines and also working um, as political actors, uh, people involved in different movements, um, organizing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a great segue then to the union because, like, it's, yeah. you have, like, this research interest then in organizing, and then you yourself are mm-hmm. um, a member of CGSU. Right. Yeah. So I, um, I heard about CGSU... Uh, which is Cornell um, Graduate Students United, uh, my first semester here, which I'm now in my fourth. So it was it was a little while ago, and people were just starting to to begin mm-hmm. really thinking about what um, a, a graduate student union here would look like, um, and really wanting it to have a very kind of Cornell specific spirit and and flavor. And so there was a lot of time spent um, thinking about exactly what that would would look like and what so that would why be. have a union and uh yeah so so why have one i think it's a well, foreign concept um, to many students the, and mm-hmm. myself included yeah totally mm-hmm. yeah i think that um i mean i come f- you know i lived in in oakland for a long time and so the the students in the uc system there were unionized um mm-hmm. and their unionization uh involved their their rights as workers of that institution um but it also involved doing doing other things uh so getting you know gender neutral bathrooms like you know doing sort of uh these kinds of um social you know organization kind of tasks that needed to happen too but you know fundamentally the the reason to join a union is to assert um your rights as a worker um someone who works for someone else and uh, we get paid from the institution, but there's somehow a interesting kind of um, disconnect between the fact that that's we get paid because we perform mm-hmm. labor, 
you know, not just because there's a kind of deep meritocracy where we're good and therefore <laughs> we mm-hmm. like deserve to get uh, $30,000 a year um, yeah. to read, you know, so. Yeah, and I could sp- speak that. So uh, for people who are unfamiliar with Cornell, we have an existing, we have a student body structure uh, for undergrads, grads, and faculty, and also an employee sent, uh, employees. And there is a, a body called the Graduate Professional Student Assembly. I've been a part of it for five years. That is the officially recognized wing, but we don't have um, power the way that a union would have power, but we are able to liaise directly with uh, the administration. But an issue that has been going on for us for the past, like the entire time I've been here is again, much like the uh, topic of the union, like are we, are we workers or are we students? Mm-hmm. And so I believe when I was part of the, um, was it, when I was part of the GPSA executive, we did pass this resolution about workers' compensation because there was a, a big, um, a very tragic incident that happened here where a graduate student was very neg- negatively impacted and um, compensation was absurdly not readily available mm-hmm. to the student. And I think that's part of what galvanized, I know, at least people in the GPSA. Do you know much about that incident? or I don't know too much about that incident, but I think in general um, it reflects this, precisely this problem you're talking about, which is this divide between student life and work life, you know, mm-hmm. which we're all, you know, as graduate students um, who are both teaching and doing research uh, have to negotiate. And, um, you know, for, you know, for me, I don't work in a lab, Um, And so I don't think that my work is necessarily subject to, um, you know, kind of traditional workers' comp, which would would be like if you were hurt in a lab, for instance, what would it look like to be... to be compensated for that, you know, for your time out of school, because at, at this point, you know, if you if you get hurt, if you need to take time out of school, there isn't any way for you to get paid. Whereas if you, you know, if there were a contract, and we were recognized as workers with the National Labor Board, then we would we would have to have, um, you know, some kind of compensation. So ultimately, yeah working in a lab, the possibility of getting hurt, that kind of thing is one of the one of the items that really galvanized this questioning around what what do we need to do in order to um, to make sure that we can have a, a certain minimum level of right. and uh, security. I see another area um, where this how um, we get that would be important and that would be not only if something happens to me physically while I'm working in the university, but what if mm-hmm. um, I'm sorry? To, what if I'm being treated unfairly? So a lot of times, I've I've noticed right. that your education, your PhD experience, will greatly depend on how well you get along with your advisor, and that's not always correlated to how mm-hmm. good your work is, or whether you're actually meeting the requirements of a basic right. PhD student. Um, and so that's where I really mm-hmm. see that. It's in, the, it's in the university's best interest to have that relationship be kind of hazy, but it's not in the best student's interest to not have, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of guidelines and, and, it's, it, and at the very minimum some requirements, some bill of rights, so to speak, for a student. And if they're only being called students, you know, it's like it's always like a right. your word against their word, and it's always really not in the best interest of the student yeah. ever. <laughs> 
Yeah, right. No, I totally, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think there, you know, the GPSA is a really great um, collective advocate for these sorts of problems. And, you know, it, the, the people in GPSA work really tirelessly, I think, to try to secure um, more, uh, you know, equal and fair, ultimately, relationships between students and advisors. But the problem is that GPSA is a recommending body. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There is no legally Mm -hmm. binding uh, recommendation um, that they could possibly give. And so the problem is that the the, the reason that it keeps happening, despite the recommendations of, uh, of bodies like GPSA, is that there's no teeth, you know? Yeah, and I feel like it's a particularly topical situation. So both um, Jack and I are also in the GPSA, and this is something that has come up with a lot of frustration recently about procedure Mm -hmm. under, like Cornell is supposed to have a shared governance system with all the Mm -hmm. different assemblies, but time and time again, uh, the administration often makes decisions unilaterally, and then, like, this is very much a case of it's better, easier for them to ask for forgiveness than to ask permission, Mm -hmm. Um, and so... We recently passed a resolution um, to that effect, but it is one of several over the past few years. And like in the past, we have like made calls for transparency, like outline the ways that they can communicate with us, et cetera, et cetera. But we can't keep doing the same thing over and over again because it basically is being ignored because and we don't have any to do that. And unionizing is that a way to get yeah, teeth, so to speak, way. to these Definitely. resolutions? Um, I mean, I think that there... You know, I think that there's a lot that can can be um, that that doesn't fall under the kind of uh, kind of legal statutes of a labor contract, um, but there's a lot that does. You know, so for example, um, the GPSA can recommend certain kinds of best practices for faculty, um, and I think this is especially relevant for the people in the sciences who um, work really long hours, work um, several weeks in a row on a specific project if they're doing certain kinds of tests and experiments and what have you, Um, which, Liz, you can probably speak a lot more to that than me. This is just, for me, it's just things I've heard. But, um, and and also, you know, who can control what kinds of projects you work on. So, you know, people like Zion and I were talking that people having this problem of not being able to finish their own, PhDs because they're working on projects that their advisors are yeah. are um, are giving them and they don't have any choice, you know. So it, it so there would be a process by which um, the relationship between um, the graduate employee and their advisor would have to be worked out because in that framework their advisor would be their boss and that's precisely what a labor contract negotiates is what is that relationship. And uh, what are the expectations on both sides of that relationship? And how, how can they be collectively bargained and negotiated? Yeah, and currently, um, for those of people who are perhaps less familiar, within the academy, I think in both humanities, STEM, and social science, there's this sort of presumption that our relationship with our advisor is supposed to be like this master-apprentice yeah. relationship. Mm. You know, like, well, kind of like Sith Lords for, for the nerds of <laughs> exactly. us out there. But, like, it's not supposed to be, like, boss and employee, and yet we do work for them. Um, so for some preface, this is um, from an article that came from the Atlantic April almost a year ago, and it's from a Columbia spokesperson. So they were they were going through the um, 
unionizing mm-hmm. effort. Their students were trying to unionize, and I think they were successful last year. So exactly. I'll read the paragraph. A Columbia spokesman, Robert Hornsby, acknowledged the challenges of pursuing a PhD, but said that giving graduate students collective bargaining rights would detract from their academic experience. Our concern is that the unique academic program and collaboration with faculty members mm-hmm. that each individual student develops in graduate school are unlike a typical employer-employee relationship and are not well served by one-size-fits-all collective bargaining process. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Um, I have a, yeah, I have a couple things to say about that. Um, firstly, uh, I don't, the, the Columbia students don't have a bargain, but they do have a, they have a, a bit of legislation that's going through the National Labor Board right now. So they are, they're the people who are bringing, um, a case for, uh, for, um, recognition of their union, because right now within, uh, the NLRB, there is a ruling that graduate students at private institutions are not workers, which happened um, when Brown students brought a case um, about 15 years ago. So that's the precedent that everyone's working with. However, there's um, there's like a, a growing um, graduate student labor movement that, that most people, you know, think is going to overturn that ruling within a pretty short amount of time. So that's what uh, I think a lot of um, higher ed administrations are dealing with is this kind of cultural shift that everyone can basically anticipate. Um, so that's just to, just to clarify that. And then, you know, just to speak to, to the quote, um, I mean, the first thing I would say is like, what is a typical, um, you know, uh, boss worker relationship? I mean, I think that that's like, you know, it's like, does that exist? I'm, you know, I'm not Mm -hmm. convinced that there is any such thing, um, considering, you know, I've done many different types of labor. I think, you know, a lot of people have, even people who are now in a PhD program doing, doing the labor of PhD students. Um, but it's not, it's not ever the same, (laughs) you know? Um, and so I, you know, I just feel like, uh, yeah, I would be, I would be hard pressed to believe that there would be some kind of um, radical shift in the way in which uh, the the actual mentoring process, if that even is something useful to speak about, the comments would that the spokesman uh, really gave really, um, I guess, kind of upset me because they they're very reminiscent. It's it's like the same kind of rhetoric that I hear a lot of admins give. Mm-hmm. And because it kind of sounds like we know what's best for you. Mm-hmm. Um, this union is not good for you. This is, no, you're going to ruin the relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's such an stuff. intimate relationship. And it's so much better for you to not have this. When really what students are saying is, hey, mm-hmm. this isn't good for me. I would be much more productive if I had mm-hmm. this. Right. And so there's this way in which they're trying to massage right. over the actual issues by saying you're going to lose something some of the academic freedom when I think it's safe to say definitely in the sciences that um, a lot of how things are done isn't exactly academic anymore. There's definitely this kind of business model for the research Mm -hmm. that you do. We're definitely doing more with less and Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I, I don't know. It's, there's just a lot of dynamics going on. And, and even as I'm talking about this, I mm. feel a bit afraid. And I think that might be something that resonates with a lot of STEM students. Because you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you, right? Mm. Like, you don't know if there are going to be repercussions. I remember that Zion and I were having this conversation maybe a few months ago, but just about how people are funded. So I think, Zion, in your program, you come in and you have funding for a certain amount mm -hmm. of years, right? Guaranteed. Yes, like we're guaranteed so it, um, when we do our STEM letters, we'll say you will be funded somehow. <clears throat> like, right, they don't say how you're going to be funded. And unless people have a fellowship already that they came in on, mm -hmm. most students don't actually know when they're, how they're going to be funded. It's usually like a year-to-year -year kind of renewal basis. Some people even have to stop or, or leave, terminate early because they don't have any more funding. Mm -hmm. And so that's like funding is actually a really big issue for people in the sciences. Yeah. It's not guaranteed. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things that really, really galvanized this um, this most recent unionizing What's effort that? at Cornell was the RATA pay yeah, differential that happened in STEM. What's that dif mm -hmm. that differential? Um, there was a there was a um, the administration right. essentially decided unilaterally to change the pay of RAs versus TAs. So people doing mm -hmm. um, different kinds of labor would be paid differently, um, and that went against the shared governance protocol uh, that supposedly exists. Um, you know, the GPSA is, is, for instance, supposed to be a body that um, that vets those kinds of decisions that the administration would make. And so, you know, when Elizabeth Garrett came in, she reversed that, mm -hmm. um, you know. Uh, but we to, had to put pressure on But we, like. yeah, but we had to say, come on, you can't do this. <laughs> you can't just decide willy-nilly, like, w how much different people are getting paid. This, you know. And, and that kind of helplessness, that ability to really say, no, this can't happen, um, isn't, isn't there for graduate students at this point. The only way that it could be is to have a collective bargaining agreement. Yeah, you know? and to speak a little bit more to that, um, since I was part of the executive at the time, like, while they consulted us, they only did it in a very limited manner mm -hmm. and didn't allow us to um, seek water feedback, which was extremely frustrating, like, that sometimes... GPSA, we do have access to the administration, but that it comes at a price, and we know right. it could be take, it's a privilege that can be taken away, mm. and so that was what was really frustrating about it. And a little bit more about the TARA differential, the logic was that for TAs, um, somehow the appropriate measure was to compare us to the IV Plus group, so IV and other institutions, but for RA ships, so the type of work that a lot of STEM people do typically, um, the more appropriate group is flagship public universities. And so that was part of the explanation for the sudden um, divide in terms of how people were going to be paid. Um, like it was, it, it is like a minimum, I think this minimum suggested, um, but still like I think that the symbolic implications were quite large. And I think there's some really smart editorials written in our uh, student paper about all the issues that it raises about graduate labor when you know, and the worth. When someone is TAing, they still have to do all of their research 
um, at least in STEM, and so to not to charge them Absolutely. less when they're still doing the same amount that a research assistant would be doing. It's really interesting. And then oftentimes, um, at least um, from the graduates I know in STEM, some people like to teach and they're doing their TA because they enjoy teaching or because departments have a requirement to teach. Mm-hmm. So, like, everybody has to do at least one semester, period, to have experience. But there are other times where your yeah. advisor just doesn't have money, right? And so right. you're doing because you need the funding. And, and again, so many mm-hmm. people struggle with that because their and advisor is expecting mm-hmm. equal amounts of research work, but they may have 100 papers to grade. Right. So you feel like um, you feel like that kind of added stress of having to run around and make sure that you can find somebody to um, sort of advocate for you or to 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 make sure that you're going to have funding is something that that is is this kind of additive stress on STEM students. I think, you think? so. I I'm, so here's what I do know that people are everyone is interested in when they're going to graduate. Mm-hmm how they're going to get jobs, how they're going to make themselves look mm-hmm. great for their future, right? They're thinking about their future. And one thing yeah. that comes up when they have to do a TA, yeah. when they have to TA, is I'm right in the middle of something. Like, if I TA mm-hmm. for this class, I don't have enough time for research, which means I won't be able to get that paper out or that conference presentation, totally. the abstract which means I, so there, it's like you're actually pushing behind or extending the time you need mm-hmm. to actually graduate. But you have to do both of them at the same time. And so I, I know yeah. a lot of people get some, have stress from that. And then there's also this huge war of like who gets to TA which class mm-hmm. because not all classes have equal weight loads. Right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's another, you know, thing that that is, um, you know, part of the kind of, like, shady, you know, decision-making, um, you know, even that, that happens in the humanities in terms of, uh, you know, how much work do different people have? Are they getting paid equally? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to, you know, what does it mean to teach two, yeah. two sections and have 100 papers to grade when someone, you know, has 10 or something? You know, so I think it's, it's um, there would have to be a lot more transparency about, just uh, to, to taking very seriously the quantity of labor that that different right. people have and deciding whether that was fair or not, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because our, our number of hours can be so variable. And, like, I know this one case, for example, in the humanities, where someone was, like, we have slightly different, like, we have full TA ships, and then we also have, like, readerships, which are only a couple right. thousand dollars for grading. Mm-hmm. But I know someone who was brought into a class as one, the one reader with two TAs, but was expected to do the same amount of work. Uh, and not get paid for that. Yeah. yeah. And they were, I think, afraid to to bring it up as an issue because there was a conflict of interest because the person they'd complained to, And then sometimes to, think, the, person the, person person the person teaching your class is your advisor. Mm-hmm. So. Yes. Totally. Yeah, yes. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, you know, the just to speak a little bit more broadly, it's also, you know, people ask us, like, yeah. well, what do people say when you talk about the union? What do what are people's responses, you know? And I think that your the biggest variety of response comes from the difference between someone who thinks 
of what they do in the classroom as labor versus people who think of what they do in the classroom as job training. And, <laughs> job and training. Job training, you, you know. Get a, job, a good job teaching these days. Well, mm-hmm. right. I mean, that's like the scarier part. But, but I think that it's like, well, if you think that, that, you know, that what you're doing in the classroom is some kind of privilege that, you know, someone has given you so that you can like later become some kind of great professor or something mm-hmm. that's very different from someone who's like well you know I have to allot 20 hours this week to do this instead of what I really want to do you know which is my research mm-hmm. which is you know the my own thinking mm-hmm. my own writing you know um, and sure some people have more coherence between the things that they teach and the things that they work on but as we've been talking about um, some people don't you know maybe even the majority of people don't uh, yeah, I was thinking that maybe something that'd be useful to bring up explicitly is that there is a, a disciplinary divide in terms of like the students who have heard about the union and are also part of the union. Mm. Um, Jack is in the humanities. Um, I'm also a CGSU member, but I remember that when Liz and I have been talking about labor issues in STEM, uh, I remember at one point you didn't know about the union. No. Um, so maybe Jack, would you want to talk about like what is what is the membership of the CGSU like and what have mm. been some barriers to reaching out to different demographics of students? Yeah, totally. Um, I think that there's a couple divides uh, that are um, symptomatic of, you know, different kinds of uh, membership and what have you. But um, so I would say that initially a lot of the interest was from the humanities. Um, I think people who, uh, you know, come up in uh, a different kind of um like intellectual culture, you know, to be totally mm-hmm. honest, I think that, that it, that these culture, we can't, we can't pretend that these are the same kind of, that, that the same kind of cultural expectations exist between, um, the humanities and sciences, you know, even if you have people who are in both, I think that they're, you know, these things are very well established as having, you know, different kinds of, uh, of, of cultivating different kinds of people. And so, um, for that reason, I think there were, a lot of people from the humanities who, who were, in a way, the forerunners of the union. But I think what's interesting is that I think they have less to gain from it than people in STEM, um, who, who I think actually have a lot to gain from, from uh, collective organizing. And, uh, and the union, you know, which has just affiliated recently with the American Federation of Teachers, which is a very, very large union, um, uh, f- you know, in nationally, but also the, the New York uh, branch of it is, is quite large as well. Um, you know, have been going into labs, have been talking to people in their offices, you know, people in STEM, and have gotten really warm reception, I think, from people who want to talk about labor issues, want to talk about gender issues, want to talk about, you know, issues of yes. discrimination, you know. <laughs> yes, sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is resonant. So, I'm resonating with you. This is so important. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that, I think it is going to be definitely, I mean, I, I would definitely be lying if I said that it was, it was going to be easy to get, um, STEM people in, on board in a big way. Um, because I think that the, you know, just the way that, that our sociality functions is very different. Um, because, you know, you guys are maybe in the lab a lot more, you know, we might have a little bit more time to, you know, talk to other people or what have you, but... Um, so do you think it's just time, or do you I think, think there's that, also a fear? Mm-hmm. Um, because you mentioned that you've gone into labs and yeah. talked to people, but as the people that you speak mm-hmm. to, how easy is it for you to get them to actually go to an event? 
outside of there's the space. That is harder. Yeah, I think that's harder. I think so. I mean, I think that people, um, I think people, what we hear from a lot of STEM people is, uh, I feel fine. I feel like my situation is great, you know? And when you start to talk to them a little bit, they'll say, well, oh, I did hear about this thing that happened. Or this happened to my friend and it was actually really mm-hmm. bad. <laughs> or, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, actually maybe I shouldn't f- have to feel lucky that I'm not getting screwed this yeah. semester because of a work assignment, you know? Again, who um, so converting this kind of, like, preservation. Who gets, right, who, totally. If you you're, know? I mean, I tell STEM students this all the time it's when they're picking advisors, and it's you got to find the person you think mm-hmm. will like you like, and that you get along with because I've seen people yeah. have horrible experiences with the same PI, but then that PI can also have a great experience mm-hmm. with someone else. And is it because both of them don't totally. have their own merit? No, not really. It's actually like their their personalities fit more and um, all, all other sorts of things. Mm-hmm. It really boiled down to this impersonal connection that really gives the students no rights should that ever go awry. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you have to be liked by the person who, like, pays for you to live, that's a pretty precarious <laughs> situation, you know? You don't have a lot of, um, you don't have a lot of mobility to, um, to have, like, a real, you know, to have a real relationship with that person when they have this kind of inordinate amount of power to control um, just your, your basic yeah. livelihood. You know, so I think that 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 is is the kind of source of the fear um, that I think a lot of STEM students have around even talking about it. You know, even talking about what it's like to be a worker in that environment, what it's like to be, you know, supervised um, in that kind of uh, in that kind of framework. You know, so, but I think that it's also changing. I think that that the more you know, CGSU gets out there and talks to people. Um, the more uh, the more likely it is that people will say, well, okay, there's other people who aren't afraid to do this, mm-hmm. you know? There's other people who, you know, don't mind, you know, um, saying that they're, mm-hmm. they're part of this union and that, you know, that, that they're proud of, you know, putting that kind of energy and time into doing something that's going to, um, to benefit them and benefit the people that they work yeah. and live with, you know? And I guess for, like, some of our listeners who might not be as affiliated with the Academy, like, this is sort of like the side of the production of the knowledge that um, comes down. And there's this hashtag that was popular, I think, last year. Was it like <laughs> real scientific methods or something like that? And like it was full of like jokey things like, oh, mm-hmm. real scientific methods. Like, oh, we said that it took this yeah. long to incubate because we and forgot about it. Tumbler. But part of the real scientific method type, yeah. But like the, the non-jokey part is like that work relations, your relationship, so observing as an outsider, that your relationship with your boss, your PI, with the other people in the lab, what your lab's funding is like, just like morale, all these like other little things are also part of this, the method. Um, it's for so much the human and labor elements that I think we sometimes forget about when like the media like just highlights like when the, the end mm-hmm. result, like, oh, this study finds this. Like mm-hmm. you don't know the blood, sweat, tears, the num- number of hours, the amount Absolutely. of angst behind, has gone behind it, like the human cost. Yeah. Um, and so... I think that's something that the union helps to bring to light is that it's like the, we are producers of, of knowledge and that is and, and our type of work. Feel, you know, I think it's, I'm thinking about those grad students who will say, well, I have a great relationship where this is working out really well for me. Um, mm-hmm. Because we sort of mm-hmm. fantasize the idea of 
I slept on the couch last night doing my research. You know, I I went out drinking and then came mm-hmm. back and I and I did this and like that was totally cool. Like I don't know if you think about to your undergrad days mm-hmm. and you will hear people and they're bragging about how long they've gone without sleep or something. I don't know if that's ever. Oh, that's, oh my god! You guys mm-hmm. never do that. You've never heard yeah. that. You're no, like, no, oh, no. My I, I have heard it. Like sometimes it's like this one upmanship, one upmanship right. of like so how, hard of how hard you're working. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of like a, a cool, fun mm-hmm. thing. And in many ways, graduate graduate school is this way in which you right. extend your undergrad, but you're over 21. Um, you're in a concentration of other nerds, so you have the possibility to look really cool because there's other nerds who are like nerdier mm-hmm. than you. And, you know, <laughs> you, you get to, you know, do this yeah. thing. And so that all sounds very cool. And you're kind of thinking, well, it's temporary and it's all going to pay off. So it doesn't matter. And I think that... Right. Probably what's aiding to having more STEM students wanting to talk about this is STEM students realizing that that payoff isn't actually coming. And it's not coming in that way yeah. that actually yeah. would justify the years that they spent sleeping on the couch and not. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it can make yeah. all those things have a different light. And, and, and it definitely is. Yeah. I won't say it's selfish, but it's very linear or singular. Like you have your blinders on because, yeah, you, you kind of don't complain until mm-hmm. something horrible happens to you. And then realize that, oh, my gosh, this thing, horrible right. thing is happening and I have no recourse. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what you're talking about in terms of the, the, the kind of paradigm shift of, of recognizing, oh, this isn't going to pay off in the way that I had kind of ideally hoped you know I think in the humanities that's something that people have been um yeah. kind of hip to for a, a little bit longer you know just because of the you know the the decline nationally at least of of kind of funding in the humanities um you know where every you know essentially everyone knows there's not enough jobs you know mm-hmm. um and uh and I think that just understanding that understanding the randomness of who kind of rises out of that situation who doesn't um I think makes collective organizing something that seems a lot more affordable um than people who think oh well if I just you know Mm -hmm. take care of me and do what I need to do and be self-preservative then you know I can I can get this done I can do it right you know um and and we just know that those mechanisms don't function in the humanities you know Mm-hmm. I say like also the impulse behind like the union here is one that I think we're seeing on many different scales that we're seeing like the um, uh, the attempt for adjuncts to unionize, for example, right. um, which I think is very much related because um, a lot of obviously the labor issues uh, in a lot of different sectors. And I don't think that the grad uh, push is unrelated to these at all, but also to put this uh, in perspective with a very high profile case like the Mizzou stuff mm-hmm. uh, last Last year, I think it was actually galvanized by yes. a graduate student who's on a hunger strike, or like one of the um, main actors of the graduate student who's on a hunger strike. Um, so I think that maybe at one point, graduate students were seen as being particularly quiescent, and you know, we've been encouraged to put our heads down and work hard. And you know, if you're good if enough, you'll get enough. the gold star tenure, like a gold star, which is a tenure track job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, ultimately, I think that's the biggest hurdle. You know is that is changing that but honestly that's also happening you know that there's going to be um you know there's only going to be more deterioration in that way 
and I think that it it will be such that people can't not notice it, you know. Um, and and I, you know, that's not just sort of like my prediction, but that's what I've seen over the course of the last year and a half, uh, at least so from from my perspective, you know. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Is and I think important? what's really important. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, oh, I was going to say about us having this conversation is that um, between me and Liz about the uh, bringing in Jack to talk about the union is because there is this divide between uh, STEM and humanities. We've been talking about on the ideological level and the work level, but sometimes it, there's also a level that the administration does play us against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and my understanding that that is also part of the history of some some of the union, like the union effort here, that right. when there was this... Do you know much about that history? I know there? a little bit. Yeah, yeah there was a, about 10 years ago, there was, a, there was a quite a large unionization effort um, at Cornell that was sort of systematically destroyed by the administration. Um, and a major, two of the major factors that contributed to that, I would say, um, the first is uh, mm-hmm. scaring international students, um, making them think that their visas were going to be compromised if they organized with the union. Um, and then the second is um, intimidating people in their labs. So, you know, they would, the, the, the STEM professors would say things like, well, you know, if you guys want a union, yeah. I don't know who I'm going to have money for next year, and I don't know whose dissertation is going to get done, and that kind of thing. Um, so those were the two major methods that, um, that made it impossible for there to be a majority vote uh, campus-wide for the unionization. And those are very um, real things. So. And this, the, I mean, I guess... Not to be fair, yeah, but totally. to kind of they do the really other really side, really. is that I think that because funding is such an mm. important issue and because it often goes up, it fluctuates, it just does, um, whether an advisor is well-intentioned or not, mm-hmm. I think knowing that it fluctuates a lot and having professors communicate that to you can also cause this stress. So even if, and sometimes professors forget because they're trying to be cool all the time, mm-hmm. they forget that they have power. Right, so if they say mm. that I don't know if you're going to be able to be funded uh-huh. if you're not if I if you're not on Project X, they don't think about how that can imply to the student in some ways that I need to make sure that I never displease you or I will not get funded or you won't look at my dissertation or things like that. Right, I see. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that, um, you know, I mean, I think that there should be as much awareness as, as possible, you know, as to what precisely the nature of that relationship is. What is the nature of the relationship between an advisor and a student? Um, and if, you know, if people f- can forget that they um, control mm-hmm. that person's, uh, the degree of precarity that that yeah. person has to live with, then I would say that's just a problem. <laughs> You know that that's um, that that's the kind of blind sight yeah. that isn't isn't affordable for people's lives. You know, um, and I think for a lot of graduate students too. And this is not my situation, but I've definitely heard this from other people. I think a lot of people are you know deciding against entering a much more stable workforce mm-hmm. um, and taking a lot mm-hmm. more sort of insecurity and precarity in the academy. And um, there's only so much that people can deal with, you know, when they know that they could go out into, you know, a non-academic work environment 
and have mm-hmm. a lot more rights, you know, and actually make a lot more money. That's a, that's you know, and that's not to say that that's what we're asking for. You know, we're not here to do that. We're here to, to you know, have enough money so mm-hmm. that we can can do our research. That's the whole idea, you know. The whole idea is you come here, you're supported, so that you can write what you need to write, you know, within five or six years, you know. And so that's not the problem. But the problem is if if the relationship that facilitates that work becomes untenable then why are you there you know and you can definitely see cases like that in like um Um, i don't know if you've seen the hashtag astro sh the sexual harassment cases that have been happening um in the in in astronomy in caltech Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. at uc berkeley in chicago um where and the caltech one's probably the more well they're all pretty They've been yeah. all over the news, but um, a professor so calls himself falling mm-hmm. in love with a graduate student and fires her, and and then talks confides in another graduate student wow. who's yeah. there about how he loves this person, um, right? And so, I mean, just thinking about the fact that the student is the one yeah. that has to really leave, and that and that's quite often the case, and then. Exactly. Yeah, just yeah. like how did those interactions happen, and and where was the real protection for the student? Where's um, there are ways in which the way the university responds clearly indicates, at least to the students, that their real interests are in the faculty. But that's slightly that's slightly different issue. But I imagine mm-hmm. that there might be ways to tie that into yeah. having a bargaining process. Well, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think that you know, it's. I think it's the the same logic um, as you know, not understanding what that relationship is. You know, it's. It, I think if you don't understand mm-hmm. that that person is there uh, to be su- financially supported through the mechanisms of mm-hmm. which you are a part and of which you supervise and manage, essentially, um, because faculty in, in that framework are in the position of managing the labor of graduate students, um, then, then that can create these kinds of, uh, you know, these kinds yeah. of, I think, what are, what are really violent um, forms of, of interaction. So know? I want to make sure that we um, expand a little bit and not, I don't want people to leave this conversation thinking that we're only talking about Cornell. I mean, we are because we have yeah. intersections with Cornell, but obviously um, students have been trying to unite all over the country. And so mm-hmm. could you, if at all, talk about other schools that have tried to unite and in, and also talk about how they've worked? Because yeah. so it's people want to, particularly administration, want to have this narrative that unions will destroy everything and no grad student will have a good right. grad student life. But we know that's not true. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think it hinges on this idea, actually, that, that somehow graduate, graduate school at private universities is ha- somehow kind of special or something, and therefore it's qualitatively different than what people have in uh, public universities, but I find that to be obviously like completely uh, ridiculous mm-hmm. as, as far as an argument would go. Um, Are there any great but, examples? You know, I have many, many friends, you know. Any well, great no, examples? I don't say great, but examples of other institutions that have had unions for years and some of the things that they've yeah, done. Yeah, for example, the, you know, the schools of the UC system 
in California, the University mm-hmm. of California system, which are public, um, but are all very, very prestigious institutions, you know. I mean, they call Berkeley a mm-hmm. kind of public ivy, right? Um, and so I had, you know, very many um, friends who were organizing within that union uh, for lots, you know, a variety of different things, um, but especially pay and benefits. Um, and, you know, the kinds of things that come up in the intersection of, of work and gender, which has to do with, you know, sexual harassment, but also um, maternity mm. benefits, child benefits, dependency benefits, which, you know, at Cornell and a lot of the other Ivy League institutions, you know, um, the amount of child care that you pay as a student, as a graduate student, versus the amount you would pay as a faculty is very different. Um, and so a big question for me personally is why, why is that different? Why is it that graduate students are expected to pay um, for childcare in a way that's exorbitantly oh, more wow. than faculty members that. when they're paid mm-hmm. exorbitantly mm-hmm. less? Um, so that's a big question for me is what is it, what's the, you know, what's the disconnect in that, you know, in that kind of line of thinking? Um, so those are the kinds of things. I mean, you know, for example... There's a uh, there's a there's a long-term unionization mm-hmm. effort at Yale, uh, which has not been successful yet. In fact, the Yale administration refused to acknowledge the existence of the union in a kind of um, in a kind of <laughs> silly way. But um, but they've also accomplished securing a six-year funding mm-hmm. for their graduate students, which is amazing. Like actually guaranteed six-year funding. Students? Yeah, and so that's the kind of oh, that's mm-hmm. amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, and yeah. like for our listeners who might be less familiar, like. Um, as we were saying earlier, like people presume it's going to take five years to degree, but like those figures are not. That's what they say, but like both at whatever institution you're at, and also nationally, that's not the case at all. Like average time to degree in the humanities, I think, is closer to nine years, whereas wow. at our peer institutions, like we're lucky that it's probably like six or something else. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everybody wants a six year. That's not. Mm-hmm. That's not something you know. That's. And most people are told that they will get one. You know, yeah. and that doesn't always happen. You know, I think we're all familiar with that story of of this kind of, you know, promise that doesn't have any backing to it, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is nice. It's nice that they you know, yeah. want to promise it. But at the same time, it's for me, it's like if you're not going to materially support me in that way, then I, I can't really take that very seriously. Yeah. You know? Not to mention, like, rent has to be paid. Like, you know, mm-hmm. things have to be renewed. Like, you might have um, your family to consider. Like, yeah, what how can you plan? Like, and is it the yeah. case that... Yeah. Um, exactly. You can have a longer time degree because if you're not getting paid, right? It's because... If you're not getting support, mm-hmm. then you have to take on extra jobs, which means you have less time to actually focus on the research. Mm-hmm. Which can not only have that as a repercussion, which is itself bad, but also, you know, in at least at Cornell, there's been a lot of problem with people not finishing fast enough in certain um, fields. But those fields are, like, largely defunded Mm. so it's you know when people aren't given their summer stipend in order to do and conduct research during the summer they're then punished for not finishing their degree fast enough Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. the reason they're not finishing their degree is because they're not being funded so there's um there's some very odd logics you know going on um you know this idea that um that that providing this kind of minimum is going to make things roll along nicely Mm -hmm. is just not true you know it's just, it's just not true that it's going to work the same way if you throw less and less and less and less money at it. It's just not, it's, it doesn't function that way, you know. Um, people are just not going to, you know, rise to the occasion because suddenly they only have four years. It's like you can't, you just can't 
make that happen, you know? Yeah. Obviously, it's very much related to larger discussions of austerity as well. Yeah. Wait, so can you talk about the current um, unionizing efforts at Cornell? I don't think we actually talked about what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Or you mentioned that there are ways, you guys were trying to make it Cornell specific, yeah. but in what ways? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, what happened in the original union, unionization effort about 10 years ago was one of the the kind of rhetorical tactics that the administration used was that it was a kind of like external body coming in and kind of telling graduate students what to do and how to organize and how to be and that it wasn't the actual desires of uh of Cornell graduate students you know and and so I think that that you know people feel like that was a pretty effective tactic and that people wanted to make sure kind of on both sides of that problem that there couldn't be um that that that, that having uh, a certain kind of union couldn't be used as um, an anti-union kind of, uh, you know, uh, tactic, but also that we would, you know, have a considerable amount of say in the way that the union itself is organized and what, um, what its kind of process is like, you know. We wanted to have, uh, we ha- wanted to have the ability to have as much process as we needed um, and to not have a kind of cookie cutter uh, version of a labor union, um, because the union movement is it's it's very varied in the United States, but it has typically catered to very specific interests, um, as we know the interests of uh, mostly white men, you know, um, and and I think people were very wary of that kind of legacy, and not really wanting to reproduce those kinds of social relations within the So if people want to get involved now, what do you suggest they do? Both at Cornell and maybe if people who are graduate well, students um, listening have a website. at their own institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if, uh, if you could, you know, go onto Facebook, check out the CGSU Facebook page. Um, we have a website if you want to go check that out. Uh, and, um, you know, if you're at Cornell as a graduate student, uh, you know, signing a card would be really great and saying that, that you'll support the union and become more interested. Uh, we have a GA that you can come and get more information about it. Uh, so there's lots of different ways. Um, at this point, most people have someone who's organizing within their department. So um, a lot of people have access to an individual who's, who's already within their kind of like academic space. Um, that can give them more information. And I think we should try to end this on a light note. So I'm going to ask you some non-union-related questions. Um, What do you like to do for fun? Okay. Uh Uh-huh. What do I like to do for fun? Um, I really like, uh, I really like dancing, I think. That's one thing I really like. Um, what kind of dancing? I don't know. Dancing... Like dirty bar dancing, kind salsa of yeah. Dancing. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah, I'm not very good at like the, the kind of official types of dance, mm-hmm. but I'm <laughs> I'm like okay with just uh, kind of uh, ad hoc dancing mm-hmm. that I like to do. Um, I I like that a lot. Uh, but you know, for me, I think something I really like to do is just keep up with my friends from 
uh, both from California and from home, mm-hmm. you know. So I think this might be something a lot of graduate students do, but just like trying to, you know, have those phone calls, write those yeah. emails, you know, stay in touch with um, people while you're doing this other thing, you know, doing this degree. Um, I think that's really, you know, I spend a lot of time doing that. It's really important for me to feel connected, mm-hmm. you know, to not lose mm-hmm. that. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm going to Louisiana to see a bunch of my friends, my childhood friends next month during spring break. So I'm super excited about that. Um, so yeah. I think every graduate student has one. What is your favorite place on campus to get a coffee and to study, mm-hmm. just to chill when you're trying to avoid everyone? Chill. Oh, when you're trying to avoid everyone? <laughs> yeah, I really like I really like Green Dragon, you know? That's kind of my, like, speed. It's, like, the it's the cafe and the art building. I think it's the art building mm-hmm. or architecture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, got a, it's got cool decor. I'm kind of into that. <laughs> I think I'm a person who's very, like, swayed by the aesthetics of, of a particular space. So mm-hmm. um, I like Green Dragon. There's a bunch of undergrads who play really, like, funny music while you're in there. Mm-hmm. So it can't be the best for studying all the time, but it's, it's great when you're meeting up with someone, I think. Because uh, it's a, it's a, it has a different kind of feel than a lot of the other kind of cafe spots on campus. Um, but in terms of working, that's hard. You know, I work in my office. Um, I'm kind I, of an office, like, wow. gremlin or something, <laughs> you know. When I want to work, I do it's not, not cool, go to my office. I know. I, I don't know. It works for me for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. It's The library doesn't. I think it's because... Our offices are close to the espresso machine that our department has, so it's like if I'm like at least within kind of, you know, a couple feet of that, square feet of that, that keeps me kind of together. Yeah. Okay. Well, did you have any more? um, Okay, no, I I think I was going to say if you had any other final comments or anything that you would like people to know about unions that we cover or why you think it's important or anything like that. No, I mean, I think people should just check it out, you know, and check out uh, check out the meetings if they can come, check out the literature, and, uh, you know, um, I just want to thank you guys for having me on the show. Yay! So, so thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Yeah. Good luck with your work, and I guess we have another trip to Haiti coming up, or? I might go in June for a conference, okay. yeah, so we'll see. Cool. Wonderful. Okay, thanks, guys. Thanks. Okay. This is Paige Divas. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye.